youth workers who have had 20, 30, even 40 years experience working in very disadvantaged communities. The one common theme amongst those workers is they feel that whereas they can target a group of young people, they can support them. In many cases, you know, they can be successful in supporting some young people to come away from a life of criminality or a life of crime, that it's an end in sight. There never seems to be an end to the referrals that you're getting. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It may seem like a simple solution to the war on drugs. Legalise weed and cocaine, regulate the market and then tax the profits. This week, a hundred youth workers in Ireland joined forces against prohibition and are calling for just that. But is such dramatic change practical? And what are the pitfalls when it comes to legalising drugs? Do our youth workers really want Ireland to radicalise that much? Or are they just desperate for us to start recognising the inequalities in our society that lie at the heart of our lost generations of young people? Today I'm joined by youth worker Eddie Darcy and criminologist Trina O'Connor, who've both been on the front line of the drugs war and who've worked with young offenders, disadvantaged communities and vulnerable kids for decades. We discuss weed, cocaine and the need to get talking about the issues that underlie a crime pandemic blighting our country. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Eddie, would you introduce yourself please and tell us a little bit about your background, how long you've been working in youth services? Okay, my name is Eddie Darcy. I'm working as a frontline youth worker for approximately... 41, 42 years, just retired from Solis Project there before uh, before the summer. Um, lecture on a part-time basis on the Unagent Work course in Dundalk. I suppose I've always had a big interest in the youth justice area. And way back in the early 1990s, when working, I worked in West Dublin for about 30 years. I would have developed a new approach to working with young offenders, which eventually became the model for Garda Youth Diversion Projects. So that was the Graph Project at the time, you know. Um, so I've always had that interest in working with young people caught up in offending behaviour. It was always an issue. It was always part of my work. When I moved to take on Sulla's project, I initially moved in there to, to work with, to lead up their justice team. And at the time, they had a programme called Compass, which still exists, obviously, which was working with young men in uh, prison. So the, the model there was we spent time in the prison, three or four sessions a week, maybe maybe even more, try to develop a relationship with young men under 25 from the Dublin area, build that relationship while they're serving their sentence, and then con- offer to continue support for maybe two, three years when they come out. So that model is still there, still operates. I also developed a new model then, um, which was, uh, as we're all aware, when young people commit an offence, uh, generally that offence goes to the, the National Juvenile Office, a decision is taken by the National Juvenile Office whether a person is suitable for uh, the guard diversion program, which means they're just giving uh, either a formal or informal warning. However, there has always been a small cohort, maybe as small as five or six percent, were deemed unsuitable because of the severity of their offending or because of the fa- their complete uh, failure to engage with with, with, the, with the, any program in a positive way. So, secured funding from the Department of Justice to work with that cohort of of, of young people. 
um, that's uh, that, that program is now operating in, in the southwest inner city. You know, mm. and they would be sort of a hardcore element that uh, haven't reacted to. Well, uh, let's the say other. let's call them a, a difficult element to engage. Difficult yeah. from the point of view, difficult to, to engage with them. And obviously, they're offending it's at a very, very serious level. Yeah. Other programs, Eddie, haven't worked for them, so they're yeah. You know, they're, so that that is the cohort yeah. that that particular yeah. program targets. They have to be before the courts, deemed unsuitable for guarded diversion, and not engaged with existing uh, diversion programs or projects. Okay, so just go to Trina O'Connor, who we've spoken to before, and just so as we can just established where you're both coming from in this, Trina, just a little bit about your background. You've told us before your own work in in youth services. Okay, so I'm a criminologist, so I look at crime from a broader view when it comes to community. My background is working in community services. I think over the years, Eddie and I have met each other at different things, lots of different things. So it's nice to see you today, Eddie. Um, So I suppose I I kind of work in a lot of the areas that Eddie works in, but education kind of is the area that I would be most involved in because... As you know, I firmly believe that education and supporting people is a really good tool to use to divert them away from criminal activity and particularly young people. So my experience involves working with St. Vincent de Paul, Dublin Simon Community, North Inner City Community Coalition, community training centres, and also doing reports for different organisations. So I suppose broadly I would look at youth justice and I would focus on education and diversion. Mm. So now, both of you are here to talk about something. One of you, Eddie, you have signed a petition from the Youth Workers Against Prohibition and Trina, you haven't. So we're going to kind of, I suppose, you know, pick apart where you're both coming from with it. Eddie, explain to me what it is that you are sort of looking, I think, more to start a debate on, yeah. really. Yeah. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, hammer down on some of the, the things you're looking for, but you're really trying to start a debate on this matter. So what, what is it exactly? What, what it is really is, and it's not an organisation, it's just really an open letter at the moment, probably signed by 130, 140 of uh, mostly Dublin frontline youth workers, including youth workers who have had 20, 30, even 40 years experience working in very disadvantaged communities, people like Jim Lawler, you know, and, you know, so, you know, so the vast majority of workers signed would probably know each other. They're all in the business a long, long time. And I suppose the one common theme amongst those workers is they feel that whereas they can target a group of young people, they can support them. In many cases, you know, they can be successful in, in, I suppose, supporting some young people to come away from a life of criminality or a life of crime that it's an endless, it's an endless cycle. Like, you know, you're in the business 30 years, there's, there's, there's never seems to be an end to the referrals that you're getting. So this constant cycle of young people getting caught up in offending behaviour. Obviously, there's been the, the Sean Redmond's research from the University of Limerick into Greentown and looking at how young people are become involved in adult crime gangs, you know, and there's been, you know, that has been followed with other pieces of research similar to that. So, you know, it's been clearly identified that young people are being uh, sucked into adult criminal networks. They are committing offences. They are facing the, con- the consequences in the criminal justice system. But it, in many cases, even though the, the actual prison sentences may be short, that the, it is to some extent almost a life sentence because it's on their record forever. And secondly, 
it's very, very difficult at times to come away from that sort of lifestyle once you, once you become immersed in it. There are other issues that the state doesn't really have solutions to deal with. So, for instance, young people who owe money, young people who face debt to, to drug gangs, they're really their only option in paying those debts in many cases, if the family can't afford to pay it, is to commit offences. And that's either by getting involved in the drug trade or getting involved or committing other offences because that's the only way they're going to raise the money. So even a young person who comes to us and wants to make an effort, maybe wants to you know, get back into education or get a job, and okay, it's fair enough. In many cases, that might be, that might be motivated by you know, a looming court case. But the difficulty we face at times is, well, they owe this 2,000 or 5,000 or 6,000, and that's hanging over them the whole time. And that's a huge barrier to them, um, I suppose, going straight or sorting out their drug problem because there's no way around that debt. So, you know, so for us, we're looking for, we want to look at the causes. We want to look at why are Irish prisons now full of people who are there because of their drug issue and no other reason. So I think the, the Irish prison population went from 750 before we had a drug problem to, to five and a half thousand, of whom 70% of the young men in prison uh, would have had a pre-existing drug issue before they went into prison. And 85% of the women in Irish prisons are there and would have had a drug issue before they went into prison. And those figures were only released last week from a European study, so they're right up to date. We know, there was another interesting piece of research launched there in the last two weeks, which was the really high level of recidivism amongst young men coming out of prison. So two out of every three young men serve a prison sentence are back in prison within a year. And that because it is, it is almost impossible to come away from that lifestyle, you know. So, so we believe that we need an open debate about what is our approach to drug to drugs. There are at least we the estimates would be that there are in excess of three hundred million euro being spent by Irish people on drugs. That's a lot of people buying drugs, you know, and it's a huge market and a huge there's huge profit in it. So, as long as that let there's that level of opportunity to make a lot of money in it. It's a big attraction for people to be involved in that trade. At the heart of what you want discussed and considered is not only the decriminalisation of drugs, but essentially the legalisation of drugs, where we have a society where cannabis and cocaine, the big two, are available to purchase in a regulated setting. And um, I heard you I heard you interviewed there on, on the radio during the week where we're talking about sort of the government being involved in, in, in some of that regulation, maybe some of those sales of drugs. Um, we'll be, maybe come back to that in a minute. Trina, I think you would agree with Eddie where he talks about drugs lying at the heart of this and all the problems that exist in society and within um, underprivileged communities and people who are in prison. And drug drugs in, in, being embedded in the communities and, and all that goes on with that are certainly we're not approaching that correctly, are we? I think you'd agree with that. But you would maybe have issues with the decriminalisation and the legalisation of certain drugs. Yeah, I, Eddie, I absolutely agree with 99.9% of... Actually, I probably agree with everything that Eddie said. I think that we do need a national conversation around how we're dealing with drugs. 
I suppose the decriminalisation, the Portuguese model, is something that I would be advocating for. Explain that, Trina, because a lot of people don't understand the difference. Not that they don't understand, but they don't apply themselves to the difference of decriminalisation and legalising because they're very, very different issues. So so decriminalisation is about not criminalising the addict. So if somebody is in active addiction, it's about wrapping services around them to divert them away from their addiction without giving them a criminal record. And that's kind of the bones of it. And I think that's what we should be looking at because for me... The biggest issue is, why are people taking drugs? Drugs are the best painkiller. So what we need to be looking at as a society is even before people start taking drugs, is looking at the levels of trauma within our deprived communities. And this is where we need to have a grown-up conversation about, number one, how we're dealing with drugs, whether legalisation is the way to go or not. I don't know, but we need to speak about these things. In terms of not being a signatory on the letter, I don't know if I would have been had I been aware of it. I'm sure there's lots of people may have been signatories on that letter if they had been aware of it. But well, that letter speaks to me in a way that it shows the desperation of youth workers who are working in deprived communities. And, and, that's, and that's very wrong that they feel that they had to start this conversation. These conversations should come from government. They should see what's going on in our communities. And by the way, when these conversations happen, there's a couple of things that need to happen. We need to have open dialogue so there should be public conversations. And number two, we need to have young people at the heart of them conversations because elves like me don't know what it's like for a young woman at 13 or 14 in debt bondage to a dealer. They need to be able to have their voices heard. And I think Eddie will speak to this because some of the organisations that Eddie has worked in have always given voice to them young people. These are the most disempowered part cohort of our population. So they're deprived, they're disenfranchised, they can't vote. All of these different things, policies that are put on top of them, and they have no way of being involved in that conversation. They may be coming from environments where there may be trauma in the environment, so they may not even have the vocabulary to be able to verbalise what they're going through. So from a broader point of view, I think Eddie's correct. We need to have this national conversation. I think realistically, um, decriminalisation will probably happen in the next decade. Nicola, you and I have spoken about this before. I think that the Department of Justice, I think on Garda Shia Khan, are definitely in this conversation around decriminalisation. They're waiting on legislation from the government. I'm not sure if legalisation is something that um, could work, but, but we need to discuss it and work it out. I know in parts of uh, the UK, GPs there can prescribe heroin to heroin um, addicts and then they can live a normal life. I think the control of the drugs that are being used needs to be taken out of organised criminal gangs because, like Eddie says, he's dead right, every young person is, is in debt bondage. They can be coerced, they can be groomed, they can be threatened, they can be intimidated. What are we doing to protect our most vulnerable these are really vulnerable young people. And, and in the situation that they find themselves, uh, piecemeal approaches for me, it's just not acceptable anymore. And I think it's a good thing that Eddie and, and the, the hundred and odd people have done. I think it's important that the conversation is heard, but it has to be in public and has to have youth voice in there. And Eddie, like your whole career has been spent um you know, in communities trying to help kids. I mean, you're you're probably, can you, do you get exhausted with it 
it's just like, it just seems to me, I often wonder how how youth workers and community workers have the energy to keep going and how they're not just left so cynical about life and the cho- the chances that are there for the people that they're working with. You're seeing the generations coming through so quickly, you know, because yeah. in, in certain communities, they're having kids young, they haven't really learned, you know, the grandparents haven't learned to parent by the time they're becoming grandparents. And for me, I just think your energies are, are amazing that you're still in there and you're still trying to trying to help and make things better. But do you just get exhausted sometimes? Well, you're right about the grandparents because I've had that experience when I've had young people that I worked with coming into this into a centre, you know, at maybe 38, 39, saying, this is my grandchild. And it just made me feel old, feel old you know. I suppose it, 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 there's a couple of levels to that. One was, you know, I always enjoyed being, and I still enjoy being a youth worker. I, I, I was very lucky that I had those skills, that I had that skill element that helped me, that enabled me to relate well to young people. And I was going on with them. And I, I found the more marginalised the community, the more marginalised the young person. In fact, you know, the easier it was to engage them because they were so damn grateful for some adults showing some interest in them that I never found any huge issues or difficulties managing behaviour like that, you know. So, you know, so it, I suppose it was the fact that young, so many young people I worked with were desperately trying to create a better life for themselves. That always motivated me. I suppose where I became, a, where I am a bit cynical and where I became a bit cynical was the fact that we were dealing with the casualties of inequality rather than, you know, and where I've, felt the, I've always felt youth workers and youth organisations should be much more verbal and much more uh, articulate around the, the, you know, the inequalities that exist that create difficult lifestyle for young people. Like a youngster who, who's, who lives in a, in a family setting where maybe the mother is struggling on her own, where where the last two generations within our family, nobody has worked, where, you know, he's attending a school where maybe half the pupils in, in his sixth-year class don't really, aren't definitely aren't going to college and really don't give a shit. They're just there because it's something to do. You know, and we're saying, well, you know, you're trying to motivate him that you're, you're bright. Maybe you could go to college. This is something you could do. But that's a big step for somebody like that. And then they're faced with the big challenge of trying to get the number of points in their leaving certs and they're up again, even though we say the leaving certs, oh, it's a great equaliser, everyone does the same exam. But if you're coming from, you know, a well, reasonably middle-class family where they can put 120 euros aside every week to pay for four grinds and they're in a reasonably good school and everybody in their classroom is working hard to get points, that's not an equal, that's definitely not an equal playing field, playing field you know. But just to go back to maybe Trina's point there, like the 150 or so youth workers who so far have, have, have sort of acknowledge support for the campaign. We don't all agree on everything. Like some will be like trainers say, hey, listen, we might decriminalise. My difficulty with decriminalising is when you think it through, what we really will be saying that Eddie Darcy can, you know, you can you can purchase your own bit of weed and you can carry it around with you and you can use it and you won't be criminalised because of that. But you have to buy it from a criminal gang. You can come to our injecting centre and you can inject your heroin safely there. I mean, make sure you don't get abscesses and there'll be a nurse available to make sure you're okay. But you have to go and buy your heroin from a criminal gang. And I, we're, I think we're almost further legitimising the role of the gangs in some communities because we're basically saying you have to go and buy your, you have to buy your drug there. And I do, think there, I do think there are different layers of drug use. As Trina said, you know, there's been traditionally a group of people who are reliant on drugs, come from maybe 
have, have experienced trauma in their background and drugs are a great way of blocking that out and coping with it. But they're, judging by the numbers of people using drugs now, there are an awful lot of people who use what they drugs, what they would call recreationally, who don't see themselves as having any trauma, don't, are holding down a good job, do have, you know, are living in, in nice accommodation, have good friends. And for them, you know, taking a few lines of coke or smoking, re- relaxing on, on a Sunday afternoon with a few joints. They see that exactly as the same as maybe having a few cans or a few beers, and they don't see themselves as victims in any way. To them, it's a bit of a life choice that they're going through for a period of time. And some of those are not young people. Some of those are people, as we well know, that are in their 30s and 40s and probably a bit older, you know. So we can, we have, we have, you know, the drugs issue no longer is an issue just for marginalized communities. You know, I teach the students in Dundalk, in youth work, and many of them, as I keep slagging them off about, come from, you know, hamlets and villages and live on top of mountains because they're Monaghan, Cavan, North Mead, Loud, you know. And I, I would always ask them every year, I said, what's the availability of drugs in your community? And no matter how remote the area they come from, they would say, we go to the pub on Saturday night. Any one of us can make a quick phone call and we can access whatever we need. So this is no longer just a Dublin problem. The, the problem with the marginalized communities, maybe that's where most of the young people involved in the gangs are recruited from because they have less opportunity in life. And that's the reality, you know. Trina, is it the minority of people that, you know, are happy drug users and are, you know, putting their hand in their pocket when they want to and just for a bit of fun? Um, are they the minority and are the majority of people with drug issues taking drugs to kind of dull some sort of pain? Yeah, I I think there's a couple of different kind of yeah. issues on this. I, I, I agree with Eddie. Yeah, absolutely. It is about... Um, the difference between the classes, if you want to call it that. But for people who come from a background of deprivation, their experience of being involved with drugs is very different to the person who comes from a background where they've got resources around them and social capital. So if they run into trouble with their experimental phase, they will have people around them that can build them up and bring them out of it. If you come from a background where there's deprivation, as Eddie said, there may be somebody there with their own addiction, you don't have the resources around you. In terms of answering your question, I firmly believe that if people are taking drugs, then they're doing it to dull some sort of pain, whatever that pain is, whether it's just teenage angst or not. Um, I think when people don't want to be present in their life, they may drink, but they, they, they may drug, but they may also drink as well. So there are people who use drugs in a social way. There's no two ways about that. Um, but it's very, very small number, I would say. And for me, the issue is not about them people. The issue is about young lives being destroyed. The issue is about young people having role models that are negative role models, people who abuse and abuse power to control areas, to control young people, young people getting criminal sanctions because of the follies of adolescence. Nicola, there's one thing, there's, there's one point I yeah. want to make really, really clear. You know, the youth workers who are involved in this are not saying that drugs are safe to use. In fact, we would all agree that that drugs are very, are, are extremely harmful to everybody, to people who use them, and are particularly harmful to some people who use them. We And I think we're in a good position to be able to stand over that because most of us work with young people who use drugs. I, there are very, very few young people caught up in the criminal justice system who don't smoke weed, nearly everybody, and most of them would use other drugs as well. So, you know, we see every single day 
the, the, the damage that drugs do to young people. So we're not saying, this campaign is not saying it's okay to use drugs so they should be legalised. What we're saying is we want an open debate about the drug, the, the drug issue in Ireland to see can we manage it in a better way. And I also think that there's this, there's this idea out there that if you legalise something that suddenly everybody's going to start using drugs. And I, I think young people and young adults are a lot more intelligent than that. So, for instance, cigarettes are legal. But well over 50% of young adults and young people don't smoke cigarettes because they accept the fact they they could be bad for my health or, you know, they are bad for my health and I don't want to use them. You know, over the last four or five years, probably with the exception of this year, unfortunately, um, the numbers of Irish teenagers drinking at 15 and 16 has actually been decreasing. And it's not because there's a, been a huge crackdown on the availability of drink. It's because those, you know, the vast majority of young people, which is now over 50% of them, make a decision, I don't want to drink at that age, because right? I don't think it's particularly good for me. So, you know, young people aren't stupid. So any supposition that, you know, you make something legal, you'll have 100% of every 19, 20-year-old smoking weed every night a week. That's just unreal. It's giving absolutely no credence to the intelligence of, 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 of young Irish adults, you know. I said at the beginning of this that, you know, you're, you're ha- this is not set in stone, that you're very much... Uh, you know, campaigning to sort of open a, a debate on it more than anything. Yeah. But there was one thing that did strike me about, uh, you know, you talked about when you see through or you think through the idea of decriminalising things, of legalising them. Cannabis, we can grow it. We can grow it very successfully yeah. here, actually, as as we've seen with the grow houses around the country and the amount of money to be made in them. Cocaine, if we're talking about legalising this, and this is where maybe I come into this little debate in a little way, because it's a global issue. And and if we were talking about legalising cocaine, we would be talking about going out officially as a government, as a state, and dealing with the Colombian cartels who are murdering and maiming and killing and causing so much destruction. And I do not think that we'll ever be in a place that our state, our government, our officials will do that. Now, unless we can grow coca leaves somewhere on the mountains of Monaghan. Sure. It hasn't been proven yet. I mean, Canada, which is not exactly a radical country in any way, has legalised cannabis. So they allow people to grow their own plants and they allow farmers to grow it. And it's highly regulated. You could only purchase it through um, licensed, strictly licensed premises. You know, there hasn't been a massive increase in use there. I do accept the fact that you're saying that, you know, sourcing cocaine would be a different issue. But like the state... Uh, every single day here in Ireland, you know, makes methadone available to 10,000 people free of charge, you know, and, you know, the, the basis for many of those drugs are the same. So don't tell me there isn't the chemical ability within Ireland to produce cocaine if, if we needed to. And don't tell me we couldn't source cocoa leaves in a legitimate way, because, again, for me, it defeats the purpose if we're, if we're f- f- fueling drug gangs in another country where, where people are being harassed and killed and whatever, you know. So that, that's, for me, would I couldn't ethically live with that, you know. But, for, but the, de- the details of legalisation would something that would have to be worked out. And I, I know it's a big call and it's a radical call, but what we are trying to do is at least kickstart the debate by looking at what might be a very radical solution, but saying, OK, if we can't go that far, what, what are we prepared to do? Because we have to... Ch- we have to change the way we're doing it at the moment. I mean, completely agree with you. And, and look, it isn't working. That's the fact. I mean, we had our Garda commissioner come out and say that it is. Look, they've had great successes, the guards. Um, I think they've had great successes with 
the top level of organised crime. I think there's no doubt about that. I don't think they're having successes on the ground in the areas where, where you're working and where you're seeing that sort of street dealing and that. They're just not getting on top of that. It's too big. Trina, do you think this idea or this call to radically change what we're doing is to do with the fact that, um, is it is it, you know, we're just decades into it now and intelligent people are realizing that you know, we just cannot go on. Yeah, I, I think I think for the people walking on the ground, like Gaddy says, you you workers like I've been walking in communities for 30 years, and you often hear this narrative, and particularly in the media, where people say, we throw so much money into these communities and we get nothing back. But it's what we do with that money. What we need to be doing is we need to be committing to radical changes, like Eddie says. I don't know if the changes he would advocate would be the changes I would advocate, but we definitely need to do something differently because when heroin came into this country in the 70s, it absolutely devastated our communities. And what we're dealing with now is a much more nationwide problem. As Eddie said, you can get drugs in any little hamlet around the country. So this is reaching further and further now. So organised criminal gangs very much in Dublin. I was in Cork last week talking to uh, a couple of lads on, on another podcast. You'd know them, Nicola, um, mm. the two Nordies. And, and they, they had experiences with drugs, but they were saying that organised criminal gangs haven't really infiltrated Cork the way it has in Dublin. And I said, yeah, not yet. So there's only one way that these situations are going to go. When we get people that are organised, they're going to get more and more organised. And the, the new Operation Tara that Angarda Sheikh Khan have come out with to target street dealers, I think that's a little bit ill-taught out because what that's going to do is that's going to push the problem somewhere else. And that's going to push the problem indoors and online and going to be even harder for us to track them foot soldiers. So what you're going to see is you're going to see people's homes being taken over in a cuckoo kind of way. The same thing that's happening in the UK, trap houses and people in debt bondage in them houses, kept away from normal society, removed from civil society. And that's where our young people are going to be vulnerable. So I think that, yeah, we do need to do things in a radical way. The war on drugs hasn't worked. What we need to do is we need to put in early intervention so that we stop young people coming to this crisis point in their life where they're in so much pain that they feel the only option for them to dull their pain is to take drugs. There is organised crime groups in Cork. I'm writing about one, would you believe it, this week. So maybe I just haven't been doing enough. Just They said it wasn't as bad as Dublin. Well, would you see, this is the thing. I'd say it, I'd say it's, well, I'd say it's not obviously as bad as Dublin, but it's getting there and you can identify. It doesn't take much to become an organised crime gang now. You get a little bit of investment and... You, I better not give out too much tips to people, but a bit of investment and you could become a massive big player on your localised drug scene very, very quickly because that's the amount of money and it's really the amount of money in it that entices a lot to it. And what you have is realistically an emperor's new clothes situation where there's a tiny few on top of the pile who are making millions and billions more than they'll ever be able to spend or use. It'll more than likely be taken from them. And everybody underneath them is in misery. And especially those those funding it, which is not just vulnerable people in, in, in areas uh, where, where they're underprivileged, but also obviously middle classes who are out, you know, using recreational drugs and many having drug habits at all. 
Eddie, I think ultimately what we're looking at here is probably to try and change the mindset that this is a policing issue because it has to be, and this seems to have been a mantra for years, um, a multi-agency approach, but we actually have to create that. We have to see what the guards can do is just pure policing, but in order to tackle the drug problem, we need to bring in education, youth and community workers, healthcare, and all those different elements to try and curb the demand, really. Yeah, and for me, it's it's even, you know, that the level of support given to young people who are from marginalised communities, you know, is completely, totally inadequate, you know. And, um, you know, the for me, all the systems that are out there, are, you know, there are, are, there's a huge level of inequality, which really means that those at the bottom of the pile are least likely to get a decent job. And until we do something to change that, the attraction of being involved in, as you said, in criminality, where money can be made fairly easy, is a huge attraction. So, you know, that, that, that would, we would need that radical change to happen, you know. I mean, if you look at the education system, I mean, I agree with Trina, I think education is one of the key figures here. If you look at the education system in Finland, Schools, it is illegal for schools in Finland to charge fees. It's illegal for them to raise money in any way. So in other words, schools all receive the same level of funding and they charge for nothing. So the school trip, whether it's a skiing trip or a trip to a museum, everything is completely free, you know, because they're, they're absolutely adamant that equality is the, is, the, is the key, that every single child entering their education system has exactly the same chances as another kid. And I think that that's a, does a, it's a really good model from really, from really saying, well, what is equality really about? It's about the same opportunity. I, many of the youngsters we work with, getting them a decent job is a massive challenge for us. And I just think that, you know, right through to those young people who unfortunately end up in the care system and end up in, 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 uh, end up in secure care. That You know, unless we're releasing them back when, we, when they're finished the period in care, unless we're giving them stable homes, and at a job, we're really doing them no favours. And I mean, and there are really good models out there in other countries that they actually that, that actually do follow that model out. Like in, in Scotland, the, the centre, one of the, the centres there that provides secure care and works with very marginalised young people, that same organisation owns a building firm. And every young person who ends up in their care system serves an apprenticeship and gets a job in that building firm. So, and earns the same money as anybody else in the building firm. It's that sort of long-term thought thing that we need to think out, you know, so that everybody leaving Overstown, everybody leaving Sherrod House, everybody leaving any other care home, everybody in a, in a, in a disadvantaged community has an opportunity for a decent job. It, it's Project runs a, um, a small woodwork shop. We, te- we work with young people who don't have a junior cert, who left school before that, and they learn how to... Uh, they learn how to make wooden bowls and other wooden stuff. It's it's quite skilled. It's they, they learn how to, they learn how to, to 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 work with hardwood, but they're really learning the soft skills about getting up in the morning and coming in and uh, taking instruction and making sure that the products they produce are good quality. But most of them will never get an apprenticeship because they don't have a junior cert and they don't have junior cert maths, and they don't have. They would have a huge difficulty in sustaining themselves back in formal education. And like I'm, I'm constantly asking. Can we not get? Can we not get them a pass? Can we not get them into into an apprenticeship yeah. without having to get you know have to do their do junior cert maths or junior cert English because they're not going to do that. But they are fantastic. Some of them are fantastic woodworkers, really good with their hands, you know. So it's 
it, it you know it's to it's to over it's to I, what I'm, I might be looking for would be you know opportunities to overcome the obstacles that are there because the, because some young people face a lot more obstacles than others. And Trina, you've seen the same. Yeah, I, just to speak to that point about young people come from care. I mean, young people, when they reach 18, age out of care and they are over-representative in homeless services. And, and the prison. And the prison service. So people that come from that care of the state are overrepresented in, in, in homelessness and prison services. That speaks to what we're doing for young people. So once they re- reach 18, in terms of that pathway to... Uh, apprenticeships, Eddie, in the inner city, you'll be aware of the Mulvey process. And this was one of the things that we spoke about. Yeah, in the, sorry, in the north inner city, us on the south side didn't get any of those deals, unfortunately, you know. Just to speak to that, that was one of the things that we identified. Now, in terms of the south side of the city not getting it, actually, it's very disappointing to hear that because when we negotiated uh, with the government of the day, it was agreed that it would be trialled as a pilot and the things that were successful would be moved around the country. So I would be hopeful that that would happen because I know Michael Stone, who's the chairman of the NEIC, has very much worked with the construction industry to see if he can create a bridge between young people that don't have that kind of education that's needed to bring them into apprenticeship. So, I mean, it just, it's joining the dots, isn't it? It's joining the dots to avoid picking up the pieces of what can happen to these young people because... Young people that are given apprenticeships are given a job for life, Yeah, you know, and that is a skill that they can use in their home, that they can travel with, all of them things. That simple thing of providing that bridge between academic achievement with, I suppose, somebody's skill, because some people may not be academically um, able at all, but skillful when it comes to working with their hands. Well, listen, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to solve all the problems of the country here today. But I do think that it's good. And Eddie and and all the signatories of this, you've done a service by opening up the debate because we always as a media seem to feel we need something to hang a conversation on or a story on or whatever it is we do. But um, in leaving you, could I ask you both just to tell us something positive that's going on out there? that you've done, you've seen or whatever. And just so as we can sort of, I think I think we really need to keep up a positive sense as well. Sometimes when you talk about crime and you talk about organised crime and drugs, it becomes so overwhelming, you do lose hope. So, you know, it's people like you in the communities that are seeing hope and the reason that we should never stop talking about it. Eddie, maybe you start. Well, Nicola, for me, I suppose, like I'm 40 years in the business and... I've never lost the belief that no matter how marginalised an individual young person is, that we should give up on them. Because I do think that I do think that in every young person there's a part of them that what would like a normal life, and I th- I just think that that's you know I so for me we should we should never give up on a young person. And the one thing I loved about working in Sulla's project was part of the ethos is we never give up on anybody. So nobody gets thrown off the project ever. We might have to find different ways to work with them. But as long as they want to work with us, we're going to be there to support them. You know, and, I, and I always remember one youngster who was homeless that I worked with for years. And it was a good few years since I worked with him. But I um, used to see a fair bit of him, you know. And all he ever really wanted was to be in a normal house and go to a normal school. Now, we never managed to achieve that. He was actually out of school by the age of nine. And he was in and out of care. He had all those things. But I just thought it wasn't an awful lot to ask for. Just a, an ordinary house that was warm and where there was food. 
and he could he could go to school like everybody else. And I mean, I just thought it was really sad that in a wealthy society like Ireland, we can't even provide that for every kid. But I do think there's a lot of positivity out there because, and I, I suppose my feelings were reinforced with Sutter's project and the Rua project in particular, where we were more or less being told, you'll never engage with this group of 20 young people because they're just so far gone, they're impossible. But the vast majority of those young people did engage with us. Once they overcame the suspicions that we weren't undercover guardia or undercover probation service or whatever, or that we weren't religious freaks trying to trying to recruit them into some form of, you know, some cult somewhere. Once I got, once, and it took us six weeks, six months of hard street work by the youth workers and so that's why you to do that. But when those young people did engage, it was clear to me they wanted a better life. They didn't want to spend the rest of their life in an out of detention or prison. So that's, for me, the positive thing is young people do welcome support and, and young people do want to live in arms. And we should never write anyone off. No. I think, Trina, you're, you're, you're a great advocate of that. Yeah, I think for me, all of the things Eddie has said, I mean, I engage with young people all the time, but I met somebody recently who went back to do a degree um, after I badgered him. Uh, he didn't say badgered. He said, after you talked to me, but I did badger him. So he's, I think, toured you in now, but I hadn't met him in a while. So I, I have to say, my heart, I was almost emotional. I, I mean, I do get a bit, I am a bit, you know, me, me tears are too close. What is it they say? Your bladder's too close to your eyes. But <laughs> it was, it was gorgeous to see somebody because he had self-belief. He didn't need me to tell him. And it, maybe it needed people around him in that time, but he's now in education and his world is open. And that is life-changing. And for that one person, every time you meet somebody like that, I think Eddie will agree, it just gives you that oomph to keep going. So for me, positive stories like that that you see all the time is brilliant because yeah. it does happen. Yeah. There is yeah. recovery. People do recover. Yeah. And I suppose it's what keep, keeps most youth workers going is the fact that we do see successes. Well, I always feel, Eddie and Trina, if there was more people like you in this country, we might get places quicker. And uh, you're few and far between. But thank you both very much. Thank you. Hey, thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.